Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On January 12, 2010, a 7.0 magnitude earthquake struck Haiti. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. Millions were made homeless. Around the world, there was a huge outpouring of support and solidarity for the people of Haiti. This included billions of dollars pledged for Haiti relief and reconstruction. Ten years later, much of the rubble is gone. But the massive reconstruction plans have not materialized to a degree commensurate with the promises that were made at the time. So what happened to the billions of dollars pledged and to the grand promises to, quote, build back better? On the line with me to discuss what happened with Haiti earthquake reconstruction is Jacqueline Charles. She is a veteran reporter with the Miami Herald who has reported the story for many years. I caught up with her from Port-au-Prince, where she was covering events around the 10th anniversary of the earthquake. Her series in the Miami Herald, called Haiti Earthquake, A Decade of Aftershocks, is an absolute must-read, and I'll post a link to it on the homepage. The series includes an interview with Bill Clinton, who is the major international figure raising money for Haiti reconstruction and helping to coordinate the international response. He served for a time as the co-chair of a commission directing international relief efforts, and Jacqueline Charles and I discussed the legacy of Bill Clinton's efforts to that end. So, as I mentioned, I spoke with Jacqueline Charles from Port-au-Prince, Haiti. The connection on the line was not great, but I think you won't be too distracted by the minor electronic hiccups. A quick note before we start, specifically to my premium subscribers, the bonus episode I've recently posted is my conversation with the veteran journalist Liz Sly. She is the Beirut bureau chief for the Washington Post and has reported for decades around the world covering some major stories, including the Rwanda genocide and, of course, the Syria conflict. That episode is one of dozens of episodes from the archives that are unlocked when you become premium subscribers. You can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches to access that episode and all of my other bonus episodes, as well as other rewards like complimentary access to my daily global news clips service. Thank you in advance. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Jacqueline Charles of the Miami Herald. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, 
and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I mean, the 10th anniversary, it it was kind of interesting. I felt like we, outside of Haiti, made more of a big deal about the 10th anniversary than individuals inside Haiti. And what I mean by that is for the people who are still in the tent cities and who are still homeless, you know, it's very hard for them to sort of wrap their minds around this commemoration because as one woman told me, the only thing that God did for me on the 10th, uh, you know, um, in January 2010 was save my life because the last 10 years have been very difficult as I named the series, you know, a decade of aftershocks. Uh, At the same time, the the president did go to the memorial site. He laid some wreath, but it was felt more like it was a event for the international community because you had diplomats who were there. They each put a rose in this wreath. But, you know, we in Haiti who've been covering this story for the past decade, we are used to a lot of pomp and circumstance and sort of a big deal. And it really wasn't a big deal. But what happened later in the afternoon, though, is individuals kind of had their own private commemoration uh, just to sort of remember in their own way. And maybe that was the best way to acknowledge uh, this past decade. So for listeners who are not as aware, can you just describe the scale of destruction and devastation from this earthquake, and you arrived just you know what days after the earthquake? No, correct? hours. Hours. I in Haiti, hours after the earthquake. So at four fifty-three p.m. on January 12, twenty ten, a seven point magnitude earthquake struck Haiti. It was completely unexpected. Buildings collapsed in thirty-five seconds. Thousands, tens of thousands of people were were dead. Uh, One of the interesting things that I heard in the last couple of days was one of the former government officials was giving a radio interview and he talked about how they had 150 trucks and each one had 128 bodies um, inside it. And this is just in the first two hours. Uh, There are 15 mass graves that were actually dug up. And I always tell people that when international community came, that they did not come with, you know, enough body bags for body bags. I mean, this was so unexpected that when they tried to get judges, justice of the peace to go out and to basically record, you know, the official death of individuals, these guys couldn't even stand the scene of what they were seeing. They were, you know, vomiting. They were taking off. I mean, it was just that horrible. There are people you talk to today who tell you that they never found the bodies of their loved ones. So the government, according to the Haitian government, six months after the disaster, the death toll was 316,000. That has always been a matter, you know, of dispute. But I use that number because they are the ones who know. They are the ones who were there. They were the ones who were collecting the bodies. Uh, We had 1.5 million people who were injured. And when I say injured, we're talking about people who had to get amputations, people who are today who are in wheelchairs, uh, who suffered some sort of injury as a result of a building that pancaked on them. And you also had at least 1.5 million people who were homeless at the time. Now, that number has decreased drastically from 1.5 million to about 32,000 today officially. But at the same time, we've got the biggest 
slum in the Caribbean, and it was created after the earthquake. It's called Cana or Canaan, mm-hmm. as in the you know biblical place that Moses led people. And uh, you have over 300,000 people are there. I, I want to actually ask you about Canaan, uh, because, you know, the way you present it in your story, it seems to have like a lot of explanatory power about how and why 10 years after the earthquake, people are still living who have been dis- who are displaced who are made homeless by the earthquake are living in such squalid conditions. So can you just describe how what that area is and how it became the largest displaced persons, you know, congregation in this hemisphere? So let's go back prior to the earthquake. This is a piece of property that a large area, sprawling area outside of Port-au-Prince just north of the capital. And at one point, the Haitian government was looking at this to build an industrial park. And USAID, U.S. Agency for International Development, they did some some testing on the site. And they said, you know what? The site is a disaster. Uh, if you have, you know, a really bad hurricane or storm, you're going to basically, you know, have just the mountains are going to peel down. And uh, this is not a good place to make that kind of investment. And I can tell you, I was on that road once in 2008 during a really bad storm, and I saw the landslides that were coming down. So now let's go to the earthquake. So we go to the earthquake, and we have Sean Penn, the actor, who's very much involved, and you have the head of U.S. Southern Command, and they say, you know what, people are getting raped in the camps. These camps are not really safe, especially for women and children, and we need to find a place so that people can go. And we also need to declutter Port-au-Prince. And they were putting a lot of pressure on the Haitian president at the time, Rene Preval, to provide land, government land, so that they can build housing, future housing. Now, there's a lot of issues here in Haiti in terms of land. And constitutionally, the president just can't designate land like that. But Preval was under a lot of pressure, and primarily by the U.S., uh, to designate land for housing, for, for future housing for quake victims. And because of the Haiti was not a simple thing and he really didn't want to do it or couldn't do it, but he did it. Okay. But as soon as word leaked out that the Haitian government had declared this sprawling area as eminent domain, people started moving in. Some of them were um, quake victims and some of them were not people from other parts of the country that were not impacted by the quake. And then people went in also and they started selling land that wasn't even theirs. So, but I mean, the idea that like what what Sean Penn and and the U.S. government was trying to do is is declare that area, have the government take over that area so they could build housing. So they wanted the government to designate land that could be used to build permanent housing. But when you do that and you don't have a plan, it becomes a mess. And the mess is that you have today more than 300,000 people who are living there. There's no infrastructure, no roads, no latrines, no electricity. But what you see there is the amount of investment. You see a lot of permanent concrete structures because people went in and they started to build their own homes, rudimentary at best. But they said, listen, the free houses that were promised to us never came. They aren't going to come, but we're just going to build our own houses. And so when you go in there, you have communities within communities in Kanaha, but you also have, you know, 
a chaotic mess. You've got a problem with gangs. You you don't have proper infrastructure. And now the government is trying to play catch up. They're trying to build roads in there. They're trying to put down some sort of infrastructure. The U.S. government gave $20 million to the Haitian government a few years ago to try and do some things. Uh, but it's not a scenario. If you build it, they will come. They came before you built it. Mm-hmm. And and it seems like still a disaster in the making, like in terms of what the USAID's initial assessment of the area was like, what you you know saw personally. Well, I mean, okay, one, you said that this land was not proper to build, to make an investment of an industrial park, but then it gets designated for people to have their homes there. And that designation happened without any sort of plan. And today we see that this area is on par to be, you know, one of the largest cities in this country. And it, and before the earthquake, it did not exist. And what the government of Haiti did a couple of years ago was they asked the UN um, International Organization for Migration to remove the numbers out of their official tallies in terms of the displaced individuals. So at one point, the people who were living in Canaan, they were considered part of the earthquake displaced. But today they are not considered part of the earthquake displaced. So because the government says, well, no, they're not earthquake displaced, so we're going to take that number out. So when they say 32,000 people today out of the 1.5 million are still displaced, they're not counting the 300,000 people who live in Canaan, but are living under the same conditions as people in the other camp that I profile, which is Terran Total, with no utilities, no access to electricity, no security. Basically, they're on their own having to do what they can um, and build some sort of a structure for them to live in. So after the earthquake... You know, you had this huge outpouring of international support for Haiti that manifested itself in, in a number of ways, in principally in, in fundraising. There's something like $10 billion or more pledged for Haiti relief reconstruction. How have you, through your interviews, how have Haitians understood what happened to that money? Well, Haitians believe that, you know, you find different things. Some people believe that the money was stolen. Some people believe that the money didn't come. I mean, the reality is this. $13.3 billion was promised by donors both during and immediately after a donor conference in New York. Um, When you had the interim Haiti Recovery Commission, which was co-chaired by former President Bill Clinton, they were tracking that number and they were all over donors to pay up and to stay true to their pledges. And a recent analysis by Dr. Paul Farmer's office at the UN found that within the first two years, there were, I think, about $10.3 billion that was promised for the first two years of the recovery, while $6.43 billion of it actually was dispersed. Mm. Now, a lot of that money, though, it went into humanitarian aid. I mean, when I say humanitarian, I'm talking about latrines and water. I remember the prime minister at the time, Jean-Max Bellerive, telling me that the cost to keep every one of those individuals alive who the 1.5 million was $1,500, you know, who were in the tents, you know, water costs money, cleaning latrines, keeping them hygienic, that costs money. Uh, But, you know, the interesting thing about Paul Farmer's analysis is that they reached out to the top 10 donors, including USAID, and they asked, what, how much did you pledge and how much of it has been dispersed? And they only got four donors to respond, and USA was not one of them. So today, we really can't make an analysis about what happened to the money because we don't know. We don't know how much of the money that was promised by donors actually 
you know, was dispersed. And we're not even going to talk about whether or not it came to Haiti, because what they also found in their analysis is of that $6.4 billion that was spent in the first two years, less than 10% of it stayed in Haiti, went to the Haitian government, and only 0.6% was spent with Haitian charities or Haitian businesses. What does that mean? Most of that money went back to the Beltway in Washington, or it went to Paris, or it went to the capitals of, of the NGOs on the ground, or their aid agencies here in Haiti carrying out a lot of the, the assistance. It, it's funny, like a lot of what you describe is almost like a uh, a familiar story uh, around natural disasters where you have all these money pledged, but then when it comes to actually pony up the money, donors sort of all of a sudden shirk their responsibilities or don't live up to their pledges. But of that $6.43 billion, you know, most of it went just to you know the immediate humanitarian relief and not the long-term reconstruction. And almost none of it went exactly. to actually Haitian organizations and very little of it went to direct bilateral support to the Haitian government. Exactly. Exactly. And we have to remember that the Haitian government had suffered a horrible loss. I mean, seven, at least 17 percent disaster and eight lost you know, at least 44 public buildings. But but I would say, you know, and, and that, that takes us to this other issue, the controversy around the involvement of former President Bill Clinton. The reason why you had an IHRC is because you needed a mechanism to hold donors accountable, to push donors to stay true to their pledges. And that's what the IHRC was. The IHRC was And that's the saying, interim Haitian Recovery Commission that Bill Clinton co-chaired with the Prime Minister of Haiti. Exactly. Exactly. And so its job was to say to donors, look, you guys like to do things your way and do what you want, but we want you to propose programs or projects that are in line with the Haitian government's priorities. And we are going to be all over you to ensure that you pay up this money. And But what happened was the IHRC only existed for 18 months. And after the mandate was up, the new government that came into place in Haiti was not interested in renewing it or transitioning it into a real agency. So when it went away, you have to pay up. And what you also see, what I found in my investigation for this series is that you had a separate fund called the Haiti Reconstruction Fund because the interim Haiti Reconstruction Commission had built chair. They didn't touch money. All they did was they approved projects and all the projects they approved, they approved it unanimously. But how are these projects going to get funded? Either the donors were going to fund it themselves out of the allocations they were going to make, or it was going to come out of the Haiti Reconstruction Fund, which is a trust fund that was being managed by the World Bank. Guess what? The donors did not want to put their money in that trust fund. They did not want to lose control of their money. So nine months after the earthquake, we still had enough rubble in the areas that were impacted to fill five, you know, super domes because the donors did not want to put money in and to pay for it. And one interesting part of your really, I think, revealing interview with Bill Clinton, um, you know, he, he seemed to engage like a degree of self-reflection about his role on that commission and the kinds of issues that he was championing, specifically this housing uh, idea that he had. And I remember at the time, you know, he would, every time I saw him talk about Haiti, you know, at the Clinton Global Foundation, at the, the Clinton Global Initiative in New York around the UN, you know, he would tout this idea of these kind of prefab houses that he had 
that he wanted to get constructed. Um, but they never, that idea that he was championing never was able to come to fruition. And he puts the blame largely on something as almost adenine as, as the idea that he couldn't find, um, housing, um, leases and housing permits and housing and land titles that are required for this kind of thing. It was like a bureaucratic hiccup that just stymied this whole idea. Let me let me phrase this another way. I mean, you know, when I sat down and I talked to President Clinton, he talked about, you know, you're, you're driving around Haiti and you you see these houses that are looking half done and you see the situation. And, and the reality is, that since as far back as the late 60s and 70s, people were talking about how do you get houses to Haitians, you know, in this country, because we didn't even have a mortgage, a real mortgage system. And. Um, and what Bill Clinton found in trying to champion this this housing initiative that sounds so practical, so pragmatic, and is so very much needed was that it was difficult, if not almost impossible, because of the issue of land titles in this country. Culturally, in Haiti, land is a very sensitive issue. People die because of it. People could could, could have property for generations in their family and then turn out one day that they don't even have documentation to prove that they that they own this land. And what he came up against after the earthquake was this thing called the Haitian Constitution. And no matter the fact that President Rene Preval had the support of the people in Parliament, uh, you know, everybody, we're all in this together. The idea for Haitians to give a foreign entity the power to start handing out land titles in this country was just something that people were not ready to do. And I think that, you know, it's so to me, when I was looking at this, that became the big revelation. And I don't know if President Clinton realized at the time what he was up against. You know, he's got this great idea. It makes perfect sense. But investors didn't want to give people just, you know, uh, a structure. They want to ensure that if Jacqueline Charles has this, this house that I own the land underneath that I have the paper I can go to the bank I can take money out against it I can you know I can build wealth I can move on and and, and when you look at the overall response to the earthquake everybody wanted to help the poor people but the poor people who were mostly impacted by this quake they were not homeowners they were renters and but you did have homeowners who were impacted they did have land papers they did have house titles but you know it was a very sticky thing. But if you had gone after them and you focused on them a lot, you would have been able to show much more progress. But everybody, the, the quake was such an emotional response, you know? And so one of the things in retrospect, people look at it and says, you know, you wanted to give free houses to people who didn't have houses to begin with. Is that, was, was that the right way to go about it and to, and to, and, and to do it? But I will end this part of this. President Clinton at interview says something very important, and it was something even President Preval recognized, even if he couldn't make it happen. This country needs to have a land titling system. It needs to find a way that for future disasters, future development, future reconstruction, you can really have some sort of measure of control and you can really build houses here that will be able to withstand. So, you know, here we are speaking about the, the 10th anniversary of the quake. How different a situation will it be for the 300,000 people in Canaan or Canaan and the other, say, 32,000 people still displaced by the earthquake? Do you expect sort of more of, of the same five years from now? 
I mean, unfortunately, I do expect more of the same. And if the economy in this country doesn't change and if it doesn't become more stable, um, those people may be far worse off. Because when I was talking to them, the reactions that I got from them was not in terms of the earthquake, but in terms of the, the current reality of this country. That yes, all of this money and aid that was promised, when you look around, you don't see the benefits of it. But today, life is very difficult. I mean, we've got double-digit inflation hovering over 20%. Um, people really can't afford anything. The domestic currency has taken a huge nosedive, um, not just because because the U.S. dollar is strong, but because of the mismanagement of the economy. And these people today are not living in, you know, a housing situation that if you get one good, strong storm, it will wash it all away. Forget about an earthquake. So they continue to live very precariously um, in this country. And yes, five years from now, it's unfortunate that their story could be the same or far worse. Uh, well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for your time. Your series has been absolutely tremendous. I'll, I'll point to it uh, on the uh, Twitter and on the homepage of the website of the podcast. So thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jacqueline Charles. Um, if you want a, sort of a more longer episode discussion about the current political and economic situation in Haiti, I would point you to my previous episode with Jacqueline Charles, which we recorded last year. It was very helpful. Thank you again. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.